1: My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Mordecai Kotler. We're at Linfield University. It's July 12th, 2021. Mordecai, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, The first question, as you know, if we're going to start with a big one, why wine?
2: Yeah, I've had some time to think about that one. And um, I think it's kind of a threefold story. It's, um, you know, I think like a lot of people you've interviewed, it starts with family. Um, And then mostly through my journey, I found that it's a lot of fun. And it kind of became, you know, stayed in the, within the industry because of lifestyle. So I come from a family with um, Eastern European background. Um, both, both my mom and dad's side of the family immigrated from Latvia. And it was just an accepting culture of alcohol. Even at a young age, you kind of are allowed to taste wine. I remember my grandfather always pouring a really heady, foamy beer and letting me have some of the foam as a little boy, you know, and um, I think alcohol was always present but never abused and it was just part of life and it was on the table Um, and family dinners were you know a big evening affair every night and so I think it started with that and then um, as I found my way into the industry I was a I don't say failed educator but I certainly wasn't fulfilling and it was going to be a slog for me and so I found my way into a harvest and and it was just a whole lot of fun and I was I was into it from the start and now, at this point, it just seems like it's a really great lifestyle choice. Um, I think, you know, wine's so multifaceted, but at the end, um, it's not too serious, and we, and we get to we get to have a great profession, so
1: yeah wine (laughs) (laughs) well we'll talk some more about that Oh, of course so you mentioned uh, education tell me about uh, where you grew up uh, and uh, what made you decide to go to school and why did you choose here
2: so I uh, I grew up in the Orange County area my folks immigrated in the late 1970s Los Angeles like I said from Latvia and so beach beach bum you know Southern California high school classic kid and Linfield actually found me due to, um, I was looking for a small school, looking to get out of Southern California in a concrete jungle. And, uh, and yeah, it was, a, it was a combination of, you know, good academics and athletics. So I came up here for a visit, fell in love with Oregon right off the bat, really got along with uh, the football coaching staff. Um, and the rest was kind of history. It was, it was a slam dunk decision to come to Linfield. So I've been in Oregon since 2001, and immediately after I graduated from Linfield, I got my master's in teaching, and got a job at Mac High here in McMinnville, of all places. So, uh, yeah, Yamhill County uh, for the win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: tell me, since you're a Linfield alum, tell me about your sort of your Linfield experience. You mentioned football. Uh, tell me about kind of experience on campus, experience with athletics, and and what made you decide, what point did you decide that teaching was something you wanted to do coming out of school?
2: Yeah, I feel like it's a fallback for a lot of athletes. Um, it was coaching, and then if you're gonna do coaching, you do teaching, and if you don't do that, either of those, you tend to, I think, sell insurance. I've had a lot of, <laughs> a lot of ex-coaches or ex-football players say, hey, no matter what you do after you graduate, don't call me and try to sell me insurance, right? So, I don't know, I think a lot of former football players end up turning into, into coaches and teachers, and so, you know after i had a great experience at linfield um you know worked on campus played football um m- still have lifetime friends we just saw some in the seattle area um you know they've got three kids we've got three kids they met here on campus so and so the the, the relationships and the community that that was fostered here at linfield definitely um resonated and i've stayed in oregon stayed in contact with all those people so it was uh it was an impactful time mm-hmm. it was really great. And then, yeah, teaching just seemed like a good profession. I really enjoyed uh, being a student and it seemed like something, you know, academics was always really important in my upbringing and just seemed like you could be a lifetime student and teach, teach at the same time uh, both on the field and off in mm-hmm. the classroom. And I, it wasn't so much the kids. I think it was more the bureaucracy and, you know, parents were really difficult. Uh, I was teaching high school special ed and uh, I was just feeling burnt out and it wasn't satisfying and someone said, hey, you'd really like to work a harvest and at the time I think McMinnville was changing, you know, nice, nicer restaurants, wine bars, the tasting rooms were coming to third street, so McMinnville was starting to get its charm, Oregon wine industry was starting to grab a bigger foothold not just here in Yamhill County, but I think in national sales and national markets. Like, right, Oregon was becoming mm-hmm. this thing people were talking about. And I started drinking a lot of Oregon wine, and not just college crush beer, right? I, you know, bush Light. Um, and so I worked my first harvest, and that was the transition right there. It was like, OK, I'm never going to go back to teaching. So, so I, had, I had thought that I would you know, kind of substitute teach and bum around, and just be a goofball, and make just enough money, substitute teaching. To kind of do the things that I like to do, and a friend of mine told me that I should work a harvest, and I did, and that was, and then that was that. Mm-hmm. And I, I
1: really haven't looked back since. So, so let's talk about that first harvest. Uh, when you were, you, you, what was I guess what was your idea of what a harvest would be, and then tell me about your kind of your impressions going in, and then what it actually was like doing the first harvest. First harvest,
2: I was like. Being blind and deaf. I mean, I knew nothing. I remember asking what tannins were on the sorting table, and they're like, "What? <laughs> I thought you said you drink wine." I was like, "I do, but I don't understand There's tannins and the grape skins thing." Um, so I was told it was going to be a lot of fun, good meals, you know, try fun wines, meet good people, and and physical labor, which I like. I've always enjoyed um, a good physical, hard day's work as well as kind of, you know, mental stimulation and. I was told that it was going to check all those boxes and it did and I think that was one of the bigger draws was, um, man, you can really get your hands into this and you're amongst people that um, are also passionate about it. And so the first harvest was 2010, Uh, kind of a cooler year here in Oregon, um, but really long pick window. And so, you know, I started in honestly summertime just doing mundane things that needed to be done around the winery. Mm and then started to show up and it didn't really quit until, you know, well into October and the work pressed on the, through Thanksgiving and it was a small winery and I said, hey, you did a great job. You want to stick around and learn more? And, I, and I'm like, yes, please. And so I'm pretty fortunate in that my first harvest led to a job where I could really accelerate the learning path and just kind of get fully immersed into wine as a profession. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was very fortunate. So where was the first artist? So I worked here in McMinnville in the granary district, um, and I worked with Die Crisp. He gave me the job. I know you interviewed Die with Lumos, and at the time he was sharing the facility with uh, Patrick Reuter and Lee Bartholomew of Dominio 4. Um, so they kind of brought me on, and managing the facility and making the wines for Lumos at the time was Julia Catrell, who also is uh, an alumni of this series, and and Julia was my first true cellar trainer. You know, died, took me in and gave me the opportunity. Patrick was making more tonnage and doing most of the production in the facility and kind of really taught me how to taste and, and gave me a lot of the knowledge um, that I still carry today in terms of, of tasting and blending and really be, being analytical, having foresight into, you know, how how are these barrels or how are these blends? How are they going to come together? Mm-hmm. And then Julia was turned me into a really great cellar rat, and uh, I grew in a cellar master role there. And I was there at that uh, at that shared space for four or five harvests. It was a really good time. Yeah.
1: It's quite a nice little dream team to get you started in Oregon wine.
2: Yeah, not too bad. I, uh, <laughs> if you would have told me then I, uh, the, the kind of the group I was with, and the clout they have now today. I, uh, i don 't think it would have, it wouldn't have sunk in, mm-hmm. but yeah it's it 's an a, a, a list of, of people within the industry to learn from, uh, like I said, pretty fortunate yeah.
1: so you, a lot of people talk about kind of the first harvest experience and then maybe not kind of understanding the full process of wine because you just kind of dropped into harvest so you, you had an experience where you stuck around you did harvest and then you stuck around and saw the rest so tell me about the post-harvest, what, what, what's the rest of the process like and what, what kept you interested after kind of the rush of harvest wears off?
2: You know, I think seeing the process through, I think that's something a lot of interns and you, and I did a bit of that, a little globe chasing, which is great, but you do kind of miss the rest of the winemaking process in that, in that chasing harvest and so, and harvest is, it's just you're just like a chicken with your head cut off. It's just so much like you're transitioning from cat management to processing to cleaning and, and you don't really in your first harvest, you don't really know what what you're doing. You just do what you're told and hopefully you're doing right. And it's like more cleaning, right? It's cleaning, cleaning, more cleaning. We can't trust you with anything, so go clean something just yet. So so it, it became into learning how to manage a facility, how to keep a facility clean and organized. As well as seeing the progression of the wines we just made, as well as blending the back vintage, anything that was over vintaged um, quickly was going to get bottled up mm-hmm. and seeing the bottling process, mm-hmm. racking, racking finished wines as opposed to young wines, you know, getting the white wines from, from the 2010 vintage into bottle and stabilized and bottle ready. and so it was really you know seeing real winemaking mm-hmm. as opposed to harvest. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that was another thing that I think accelerated the, the growth curve. And, and it just made it more multifaceted, right? It like kind of entrenched me further into the, mm-hmm. into the winemaking world is, OK, you know, because I hadn't even seen a vineyard yet, right? This is an urban winery. I was just like, I haven't even seen a vineyard. So the fruit just shows up, and you crush it, you do all the stuff. And it's like, whoa, now, now real winemaking begins. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that was, that was important.
1: About the learning curve for you, you mentioned starting and not having real any any real background with wine, other than having had uh, and imbibed some. Uh, tell me about how long it takes you to learn the vocabulary and the kind of the style and the 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 process. How long till you feel comfortable doing something like that?
2: Uh, I think I'm still. I think vocabulary-wise, I think it's always evolving. You hear funny words like panacity or or typicity and um, uh, that that that's that's ever evolving. As is as is the learning curve, right? I think. Um, I mean, working with colleagues and every vintage is a new chance to learn is certainly going to throw something different at you, but I think anyone could do it uh, I had and still have a knack and enjoyment, like I said, for physical labor mm-hmm. and a long day on your feet and so if you 're willing to do that um, then yeah, then the rest you could just be a big a big sponge and so i took it I kind of took it full on and like I said, I had really great mentors mm-hmm. and between Julia and Patrick, especially, we did a lot of tasting and a lot of blending, and I think that's that's really the only way the way to do it. I mean, if you're going to be a rat, you're going to be around wine, and you'll figure out how to clean pumps and what's the most efficient way to get in and out of a tank to clean it. That's that that you just got to do. But I think um, having really good mentorship was probably the the key
1: cog there. You know. You mentioned that you spent some time uh, working abroad as well. Tell me a little bit about that, how, how it came to be, wh- where you wanted to go, and what were some of the big takeaways from the experiences?
2: So everyone in that cellar had done had done some harvests abroad, um, and everyone talks so fondly about New Zealand, which is amazing. So I went to New Zealand first in 2012. So I did two full years with the, the Dominio Lumos crew, and then in 2012, I went to New Zealand and worked for someone that both Patrick and Lee had worked for. Um, They worked for Brian Bicknell, who owns Mahi Wines uh, in Marlborough. And so I went and worked for Brian. And they actually worked for Brian in South America where he was consulting. And they were a young couple kind of Mm -hmm. getting their feet. And I had an amazing time. Brian's a, I don't know, he's a world-renowned famous winemaker and just a hoot. Really, really fun person. But... And a Genius savant as well, on top of his class in Adelaide, and just a really knowledgeable person to work for. And so that was pretty amazing. And then I kind of thought I'd chase some money, and it wasn't really that way. You know, Australia, you you get paid pretty well in Australia. I worked there the following, you know, southern southern hemisphere harvest, and had a really good time. Um, got paid well, but just like you know, it's cost of living. So I had a really fun time in Australia. Uh, really hot. Uh, work night shift, massive winery, a massive winery, and uh, and that and that's a totally different thing. And that I think that was very impactful as well. Just learning how to make large scale wine mm. and and big hoses, big movements, um, totally totally different <laughs> uh, scale of economics to what's going on here in Oregon. But really, really important to learn I think as a winemaker mm-hmm. and as a as a cellar worker. I think
1: it's that was that was that was important what are the biggest differences uh aside from scale which we'll talk about of course later What are the biggest differences between making wine in oregon and making wine in new zealand or australia what were the biggest differences whether uh, technologically or culturally culturally i thought
2: that new zealand and australia they're fairly similar they would tell you not at all but i think they're fairly similar as australia was certainly a bit more bro town you know, it gets that rap, and I found that to be a little bit true. Hopefully, no one from Australia is like <laughs> made upset at me. Um, but I think just climate. Obviously, I think the biggest thing is climate, and then viticulture. You know, most of the vineyards in New Zealand were were fairly flat. They don't have to worry about quite the drainage that we do here. They're not they're not so much hillside like they are here in Oregon. And they crop a little bit heavier, um, and they pick things a little bit greener because of that. I think the wines. Uh, the, the Pinots to me are you know a little bit more herb- herbaceous, but they still have that great freshness and liveliness that Oregon seems to carry very well. And then the Sauvignon Blanc, I love that. I love green white wine. Uh, my wife and I are both super guilty of that. So when you crop Sauvignon Blanc like that and, and, you, and you carry that much fruit and you don't get the kind of degree days and the general warmth that we, we've seen here mm-hmm. in the last few years, then you get, you get significantly greener wines. Um, mm-hmm. And that was the first place I saw machine harvesting, mechanical harvesting, which I think's really come a long, long way. Uh, and so that was really interesting. But coming back from New Zealand and, and, and seeing those harvesters for the first time, I'm like, whoa, that's, that's just madness. And now, and now it seems to be more and more the norm here in Oregon as well. So it's kind of the,
1: seems to be the future of winemaking so at what point did you consider this to be something you wanted to do permanently a, a, a c- career was that right away or how, how long into the process
2: uh yeah i think you know those guys kept me around originally in the early days and i really really enjoyed it and yeah it was soon after that i remember having a conversation with my mom and like, you're making no money you're <laughs> broke you're like you had to career, you had benefits, you had a salary, you had 401k or PERS, right? You had had like trajectory of life. And now you're, you know, a a menial hourly worker who is a starving, starving winemaker, wannabe kid. (laughs) And I told her, I said, well, I'm going to do this and it's going to take some time. But I promise you, winemakers make way more money than teachers. If they're good at it, and just wait and give me time, and that was that was really early into it. It was probably you know 2011, 2012, mm-hmm. right around the time I started traveling, and getting very very serious about about growing mm-hmm. in in the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it didn't take long.
1: So what comes next for you? you, you you've, you've worked at, you worked with the, the, the gang at uh, Domino Four and 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 Lumos, and you've done some working abroad. What comes next?
2: So after that. Um, you know, I was just looking for uh, kind of the next step up, more responsibility. And, you know, um, f- for no no reason other than sometimes it's just the life course, I was looking for a bit of a change. And I took a job with um, Tony Soder, working for him, and then James Cahill. Um, those two set me on a career trajectory that's kind of, you know, hopefully still going. It's an arc that's still going. But, yeah, I left in two, for the 2015 harvest. I worked for for Soder Vineyards, and you know, no knock on on any of the aforementioned people, but you know, Tony Soder um, is is beyond beyond my greatest mentor, and I uh, still keep in touch with him. My wife still works for Soder Vineyards, and and that was. Those were special years, that was a lot, a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I was making mostly the Planet Oregon and North Valley brand wines, working with the estate winemaker over there, Chris Fladwood, and, um, and that, that, that was great. And then in 2018, I vinified the 18s for Soder. And then not long after harvest, I took a job with Valkyrie Selections. And I'm now the winemaker for Avarain, which is our Oregon project. And so that was, a, that was a tough, those were two tough transitions, mm-hmm. you know, leaving, leaving the people that brought you into the industry and then leaving someone like Tony who took me under the wing. And you know, my first uh, born, first born daughter was, uh, we had when I was working, when we were, my wife and I were both working for Soder and, and we call him Uncle Tony, right, and he's, <laughs> it, was, it was a great place and time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was just another, it was a, a similar time where it was, it was a chance for me to kind of be on my own and, mm-hmm. and strike out with Averine and so it was, it was kind of two similar transitions that were really difficult but I thought really important and, and beneficial for career and personal growth. Mm-hmm
1: talk about the first one first, obviously you mentioned kind of leaving the, your, your first people in the industry. What's the biggest change for you going to Soder and, and what was the kind of, you mentioned additional responsibility, what was the additional responsibility there? I think managing a facility without, you know, without
2: someone else there all the time, right? It was I was managing an off-site winery and it was, you know, I think at the time I was an assistant winemaker, cellar master, kind of combination title thing, but really. Tony and James's times were split between the vineyard and the estate winery and my own, and so there'd be times, especially during harvest, where you're just making decisions and making wine, and you're out on your own, and it's it was significantly more pressure and more responsibility, and it was just a a ramped up need to perform, mm-hmm. and that was great. Um, that kind of goes back to the old jock ath- athlete in me, and it's like, hey, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do well here, and it's mm-hmm. that that pressure sometimes really helps, and so. So it was great, and it was the same for with Averine, where It's a Valkyrie's a California-based company, and as 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 much as I loved working with Tony and James, uh, now I'm completely on my own. Uh, we have a director of winemaking, California, and our owner kind of check off on blends and are certainly involved in the winemaking process. But now it's just me in Oregon, so it's kind of taking away um, another layer of safety net. So.
1: <laughs> more pressure yet again which is great I love it. So your first role at Sodor you mentioned kind of that's like the first time you're kind of making solo decisions tell me about that feeling for you uh, were you pretty confident were you pretty pretty nervous uh, first time you're making a big decision on your own what, what, what's going through your mind? Uh, don't mess it up no <laughs> yeah no I think confidence is there I think you you build
2: it on history you trust your palate you know you do all the all the kind of cliche things but yeah, I think, you know, you can't, you can't go too wrong. It's just wine. I think when you ask the question, you know, why wine? Because it's just wine, right? I mean, no one's solving Earth's problems. One of the great things about wine, is it, it brings people together, whether it's good or bad. One thing Brian Vicknell at Mahi in New Zealand always said was like, you could make a 100-point wine, or you could make the worst vinegar bomb ever, 30% of people are going to hate it. 30% of people are going to like it. 30% of people are going to think it's the greatest thing ever. And I was like, well, what about the rest? And he's like, oh, you know, <laughs> of you me." Know, I was like, whatever. I was like, you missed just there, Brian. But it's kind of like that. So when you're making those decisions, right, you just want to make sound, clean decisions, make good wine. Mm-hmm. You, know, what would, you know, what would your mentor say or do in this situation? And it kind of goes back to something I mentioned before is, you know, trust your intuition. Trust your palate. It, it, it can't go too bad, you know, mm-hmm. so. And fermentations want to talk to you, right? It's a, it's a reciprocal thing. If it smells wonky or weird or tastes funny, it's just in need of something. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, just, it's, just, it's just want for something, and that's when you, as a winemaker, get to decide what that something is. Whether it's low intervention or some kind of addition, you know, you, you, know, you, you play that game
1: on, on what you feel is best and your style. So tell me about the the, the jump to Avarain, Aver- mm-hmm. Rain. okay got it the, the jump to Avarain, you mentioned that's that's a, a, a jump in, in in scale and responsibility. so tell me about that step and what 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 attracted you to the project and kind of what your initial role how you saw your initial role playing out
2: so that was the first big step was you know kind of taking off the associate winemaker and just having the winemaker banner and 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 it it added a lot of responsibility in the vineyard of of you know, sourcing grapes—something that James did at Soder and, and did incredibly well—and um, so, so working with vineyard managers, working with A-list sites, sourcing them from—you know—all the pricing to tonnage to everything like that—is, uh, you know, building the program from grape up was incredibly exciting. And then, no matter how no matter how great a wine was, I think there's a little bit of ego involved with all winemaking. For better or worse, is it's still Tony Soder, right? He's the eponymous, famous Tony Soder, American winemaker, and so I think now all successes and failures are pointed at me, regardless. And I think that's that's fun and that's intriguing. And so, you know, not only kind of taking this this young program that was skyrocketing forward in Naverine, but then. And grabbing a hold on it and saying, "Okay, now I can kind of make this my own. What can I, mm-hmm. what can I do in terms of bringing in, just as good or better material, you know, um, increasing the vi- profitable viability of the of the brand, as well as, you know, kind of hopefully taking it to the next level." And that was all, that was all very alluring and still is. I mean, we're still, still working and trying to, to do better all the time. So.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So talk about building, kind of building that program. So when you're looking for all of those things, looking for vineyard sites, looking for, for, for style, how are you going about that? How are you building that program? What, what are you looking for in grapes that are going to be in Averain? I think it starts with the relationships.
2: You know, I'm looking for, to work with growers that are, are like-minded and that are just pleasant people that you want to be building relationships with and working. And so, you know, I, I'm. Uh, working with, still working with Lee mm-hmm. at a really great biodynamically organic farm site that she's managing. I think Sam over at Atlas has been a great partner. I've got some great sites in my favorite AVA, the Amity Hills, they are working with. And so just looking for really quality sites that are farmed well by professionals uh, who know what they're doing, who are passionate about it. And they're, in, and it shows um, in the material. And so it all, it all, you know, my job's easy if the grapes are good, mm-hmm. um, which was really easy if the grapes are good, I like to think, so if the material's great, then the end product will be, and so it's it's finding those sites and those growers and and building those relationships and and that was tough. you know 20, I think 2020 with the smoke and the fire really tested growers and and wineries, and I think in the end. Um, the the partnerships we have built and maintained through it um, are gonna come out stronger and it's, it's just kind of a,
1: a testament to that ethos. So what is the vision behind Ava Rain and, and and what is the the kind of the what, what is the hope for the end product? The end product is to just be a, a
2: you know fruit for delicious primarily twenty dollar bottle of Oregon Pinot Noir um, it's about ninety percent of my production maybe more is uh is a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir um like you, you find it at most grocery stores or restaurants in that kind of 20 dollar range and it should just be damn good you know it should just be really really good and a great representation of the state mm-hmm. which I think is you know good good mouth feel, tons of fruit lively acidity just kind of all the things that Oregon is known for you know kind of a hallmark banner Willamette Valley Oregon wine so I think you know, Avarain is only growing in production. Um, and we hope to continue that success. And then, you know, and continue those growing partners. And, and just, I don't know, I'd love to see it become more sustainable. I think that's a big question in the Oregon, Oregon wine industry, is, is that we could be on the forefront on an, on an international movement, is how can Avarain grow and reduce its carbon footprint. And I think that's a, that's a great question that I don't necessarily have an answer for, but it, it's a direction in, in, in which we're trying to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So you mentioned earlier that when you were in Australia, that was the first time you'd really ever seen wine made it at, at the kind of scale. Tell me about the challenges of making wine at scale specifically in Oregon or, or just in general, what, what are the biggest challenges for you and, and what do you kind of consider your, the most important part of your work in, in terms of keeping the, scale, uh, keeping the wine at scale?
2: Oh, that's stuff. I think, well, when you have a really large blend and you have big tanks and you're making wine in larger vats and you're not doing small batch wine production, it all has to end up somewhere. Right? So when you have these small niche blends, Somewhere there's a calling station where it all goes, and so the larger the scale, the bigger the call, <laughs> the bigger the end pot, and so I think getting a large blend to that to that magnitude, sourcing from a you know a large vast multitude of vineyards, AVAs, farming styles, quality of grapes. Um, it all manifests into the final blend. Mm-hmm. I think as, as all of that grows, it, it, it kind of snowballs into something that becomes exponentially harder to maintain that quality for one reason or another. So yeah, I think making a $20 bottle is as delicious as one would hope for that price point. It's, it's a challenge in its own right. It's a really difficult wine making challenge that, um, that I'm continuing to learn. It's, it's tough. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So with that said, what would you consider to be your winemaking philosophy or, or style? What, what, are you, what are you hoping for when you're making a blend of that size?
2: Well, I think farming first, right? If the farming's right, then the wine will be good. Um, I think that, that comes from all the mentors I've had. Um, you know, Di's a farmer first, Tony's a farmer first, I think Patrick. Is intimately involved with the grapes. Lee is one of the best farmers in the state. So that was, that's always been bred into my winemaking. Is that, if you, like I said, if you have good grapes, then you'll have great wine. Um, and then after that, I think just reading the fermentations. I'm, you know, I think I have a bit of a recipe that I that I like based on, on the people I've worked for and the things that I've seen and learned. Um, and I, you know, I've kind of cherry picked a little bit from each here or there, right? Um, but also reading the fermentation. It's gonna, the fermentation and the vintage are going to lend you and push you in a direction that I don't think you necessarily want to fight. If it's a hot year and it's a warm year, then it's going to be a riper wine with higher alcohol. And you've kind of got to let that happen, in my opinion. And if it's a cooler year, and you're gonna have greener flavors and, and harder tannins and less mature tannins and lower alcohol and higher acidity, you know, I might extract a little less. I won't take a lot of that, that green or that, that astringency and, and just amplify it. So I'm, I'll roll with that and make a more delicate wine and a, a lighter fruitier kind of classic kind of Oregon old school wine. And in the, in the pre-hot pre years, we were making these, these, these big boozy wines that have, that have done really well in the market. And you look back and it was always cold and it was always a steer and it was kind of the hallmark of Oregon. And so I think in a roundabout way, my style is, is,
1: is predicated upon what the season gives
2: us. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you feel any, any pressure making wine at scale and trying to make wine at, at that price point to have the same wine every year? Or are you, able, are you comfortable with wine, vintage, vintage to vintage varying quite a bit? I think a little bit of both.
2: Uh, you know, I think stylistically there should be like, oh yeah, that's an Averine wine, right? It's it it kind of checks these boxes. It's you know, it's 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 clean, it's fruity, it's approachable, right? Um, but also, I think having that vintage variance, I, I I quite enjoy it. I think every vintage tells a story, mm-hmm. right? Uh, my wife and I were talking about this on the way here. Is that it's one of the great things that you know as. As you taste through vintages, and you can see a winemaker style indicative in a in a in a set, but you can also see the vintage and what it has to tell. And every year has a story to tell. And I, I think that's one thing that winemaking has done, is that it's far more in tune with each individual year. And you can look back and say, oh yeah, in '11, right? It was cold, and 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 it, and it does that for life as well. And you're like in 2016, and as those life moments seem to, to carry more weight, um, as do the vintages, you kind of go back and recall.
1: Uh,
2: I don't know. It's kind of nice that way. So. So yeah, I don't know, <laughs> lost track.
1: No, that's a good answer, that's a good answer. Yeah. So when, when you think back on a vintage, what, what, what are the things that come to mind if you, if you think back on a, on a year in a vintage? What, what triggers, do you, do you think most about the wine? Do you think most about the weather? Do you think mostly about what was going on in your life? What, what, what does that trigger for you?
2: Yeah, I think all those things. You know, I think 2016 is the first one that comes to mind. It was the perfect growing season. I think farmers will tell you different, but it was a light crop, tons of density, um, really concentrated flavors. Um, you know, my kid, my firstborn came to the winery like every, every like Thursday and Friday, she was at the winery in the pack and play on the forklift, hanging out. And so that's a year that really stands out for all kinds of reasons, you know. And 2014 was a year, it was unchecked and unknown kind of volatility. The wines just didn't want to finish fermenting. And it was another great growing season, big crop, warm. Everything seemed fine. And you just kind of think back, like, man, why did all those wines not want to get along? Um, well, those fermentations just weren't happy at the very end. And, it, and it's something that you heard about through colleagues. And it was a conversation you heard. It was like, man, is this just our cellar? What have we done wrong this year? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think each one has its own little hallmark and its own banner. And you remember it not just for the weather, but for the, for the stories that come along. Yeah. Like two thousand seventeen, the fruit just never stopped coming. <laughs> it was just it was just backbreaking and soul crushing and you're just like, Man, this is this is miserable. <laughs> this is not fun anymore. Like we just have no more room. There can't be more grapes on the vine. And they're like, Yeah, no, there's another another truck coming. Like, make space. And they're like, we don't have space and <laughs> like, no, send it back.
1: Yeah. So tell me about the the e- the first wine that you remember that was sort of your decisions going into the process, first, first, first wine you produced that was your wine, talking about putting that out into the world, what, what, what were you feeling about that? And, and what was sort of the reaction to that wine? So I did a silly
2: thing and um, started my own brand in 2012. And it was short-lived. Um, but it was that wine. And it was called Grit after, you know, it's got to take some grit, right? And uh, Yeah, it was really good, and it was dumb luck. You know, 2012, talking about the variations in the growing season, 2012, we got this weird east wind that kind of came in and just dried everything out. It concentrated all the flavors. Everything got ripe fast. Sugars were through the roof. PHs were high. Everything was shriveling. Farmers were freaking out because their crop was literally just desiccating on the vine. And someone offered me some really amazing Chehalem Hills, Chehalem Mountain fruit for next to nothing it was like ah, okay I asked the guys and they said okay and so I did it and it was an absolute slam dunk it was received so well because it was a 2012 uh, I've heard many many people say if you couldn't make a nice wine in 12 then like get a new gig <laughs> right Like yeah so it was received really well and it was all the decisions and all the things and it was a, one of those situations where the fruit was perfect and you didn't have to do anything it was just good and so that was probably the first year. And then the next one was probably the 2019 Averain Willamette Valley, which I'm really, really proud of. Um, the 18 my, um, my predecessor had made and I had blended. Um, so that was kind of felt like half and half. But all the wines from that 2012 that was my first one to, to that 19 Averain Willamette Valley, we're all under the tutelage of really great mentors and advisors. Um, you know, Tony was never going to say, hey, we're putting this wine out in the market without being intimately involved in the fermentation and especially the blending process. So right. um, yeah, it, it took a little time to get there. Yeah, that's fun.
1: Well, let me talk about the 2012 wine first then. Um, you, you, you buy the grapes. You make wine that you're happy with. You start a brand why why not continue it
2: Uh, i think you know you talk about scale of economics and whatnot it takes whatever you paid for the fruit it's going to cost to make the wine and then it's going to cost the same to bottle it and and then it's going to cost more on top of that and there was just no viable money to be made in it it turned into like a cool little passion project that grew into into something more and then it turned into just kind of a headache and a distraction that I didn't want anymore. As cool as it was to have and nice to have to to drink and be around and share with people and 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 tell the story and do all that. It just it just was time to to, to let it go. And so I did. Yeah. With no with zero regrets. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. Yeah. And if someone asked me now, or do you know do you want a vineyard or would you start your own brand? I, you know, the answer is probably is no. I don't know if that's like a forever answer, but it's pretty, at this stage, it's a pretty firm
1: no. Yeah. I like my day job. <laughs> so from that first bottle uh, in 2012 to 2019, what had changed for you as, as a winemaker and what, had, what changed for you about sort of the confidence level putting, the, putting a wine out in the market that was your responsibility, your, your baby? A lot, you know, in 2012 it was just, I still knew next to nothing, really,
2: to be honest. Like, I was a baby in the industry and still am, if you know, in, in most aspects, but a lot of really good vintages in Oregon and a lot of learning. Um, just, just spending that much time with Tony and James and, and Chris as well and, you know, making making the wines for those guys and being intimately involved in in all the processes and and tasting with them not traveling right at this point I'm firmly planted here in Oregon mm-hmm. and and we're and we're constantly talking and learning and tasting and and making and making those decisions along the way it just kind of put me in a position to do to just to do it on my own and that's what that 19 represents mm-hmm.
1: So what was the reaction to the 19, sort of c- critical consumer reaction in the 2019, and what did you want to build on from that? Yeah, it was a hit. I
2: mean, we sold a lot of it. Um, we are nearly sold out, which is great. I think at that price point, it it got the scores. That helps the sales team, you know? And so that's not something I'm Really focused on, but I know it, it pushes the needle, right? Salespeople and winemakers like pretend to like, oh, it's it's hip to say uh, I don't I don't want to talk about scores, but then you do, right? Inherently, it helps your wines, or you put it on your resume or whatever. You say, oh yeah, I made that one time, I got that huge score, that <laughs> you know, right? So so the '19 did all those things, and I think in a year that was a little bit, um, you know, it lacked for a little ripeness. I think there was some there was some stress there, but the wine in the end came through, and and it checked all those boxes that we talked about of fruitiness and and being typical of Oregon and just just delicious and easy and and complex enough to pair with food, but not so big or or encompassing that you just couldn't just drink it and enjoy it. And so and to take it from there, I just you know and just do it again. I think that's the hardest part is probably just to repeat that. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I imagine especially when you have a year like 2020 following it. So let's talk about 2020 a little bit for, from your perspective. Let's start with the, the first big part of 2020, the, the pandemic. Um, tell me about sort of initial personal professional reaction uh, last spring as as COVID-19 rolls in. Um, what was kind of the initial reaction and, and what were some of the initial things you had to do to, to respond to what was going on? Well, I work at a custom crush facility. We make the wines out of 12th and Maple
2: in Dundee. And so, you know, there it was just, they had to do all the pivoting. And so, for me, it was making all the same adjustments we've all made societally, from masking up to social distancing and, and spending less time in the winery and more time working from home. and. So that, you know, that was a challenge, uh, but we all adapted to that, I feel like, one way or another. And then the other, the harder part might have been the, the distance from California, right, is like not traveling, not going down there, not seeing uh, the other members of the winemaking team, having a bit of a sounding board, uh, tasting with them. Um, so already being on a bit of an island in Oregon, working for a California based company. Now it's like, we're not going to see you. We don't know when. Um, so those were probably the, the, the biggest challenges. Um, you know, it didn't. We're very, very lucky in our household that I don't think COVID didn't affect us the way I think it affected many, many people.
1: The other part of 2020, of course, as you mentioned earlier, was the fires and the smoke at, at Harvest. So tell me about dealing with that, about all the, all the places you're sourcing, all the decisions you're making. How were you kind of juggling all the things you had to do in that short amount of time at, as the smoke was rolling in? That was crazy. So, you know,
2: Rob Fisher, our winemaker down in California, called me on like a Sunday morning early, and it was just Morty, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, hey, Rob, out here. And it's FaceTime, too. I don't get FaceTime calls from my boss on Sunday mornings, typically. And he's like, hey, I saw your AQI is through the roof. What's it look like out your window? And I was like, and I'm like, smoky, man. He's like, great. Get a bunch of buckets and get going. So we started immediately sampling all the vineyards we could, block by block, every individual block. And we did all these micro fermentations in five gallon, you know, your five gallon Home Demo bucket, basically. Um, in our garage and and like throw in fans and do co2 exhaust in our garage my kid was using a like a rice uh, mashed potato masher doing punch downs in the garage and and just trying to get a read on on how bad things were going to be and i think the answer was seemingly not good unfortunately and so but i think having having people in the network who had had just dealt with that and seeing that we were pretty proactive and got on it early and and immediately started having very real conversations with growers and i was like hey well we need to create some kind of contingency plan here for if things are as bad as they might seem you know what what are we going to do and we're going to we should do that we should do something together Mm -hmm. so so just having those conversations immediately and and having those firm relationships like we talked about earlier it, it goes a long way and makes it it makes it easier in, in a difficult situation like that.
1: So when it came time to actually making the wine. Were you, were you able to source as many places as you want? Were you able to make as much wine as you want? What were the kind of contingencies you had to put in for your own winemaking?
2: Yeah, we didn't harvest very much. Honestly, we, did, we, did, we didn't harvest much. And what we did was kind of an agreement with the growers, um, knowing that we were probably not gonna bottle anything and that it, it wasn't gonna lead to a finished product. And at that point, it was a learning curve for everyone, I think, in the state. And so I did a a ton of reading and kind of tried to consume as much information about making wines with smoke impact as I possibly could. And it was so sad because 2020 otherwise would have been an absolute banner year. In Oregon, you never have this huge window to harvest grapes, it's always They're getting too hot, or the rain is coming, or something is going to happen is going to force your hand in Oregon. (laughs) In 2020, they were just sitting out there, and unfortunately, you know, they were tainted at that point. But we had like two weeks to pick at your disposal, and so everything I had read was to make a really big wine. And so I just let them hang until like the first week of October, and we just brought everything in, and I made. These big, enormous, almost Syrah-like Pinots, but at the end of the day, they were they were they were pretty smoky, uh, and varying degrees of impact based on site and exposure and whatnot. But um, yeah, pretty devastatingly sad.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. so, for both those things, looking ahead, we'll, we'll start with we'll start with smoke. So we about smoke for for that looking ahead what do you take away for the future what if it happens again what 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 are you prepared to do now and what kind of what has changed for you and for the industry after going through 2020
2: i couldn't speak for the industry because i think we're all still coming out of it and i think you're still going to see some 2020 wines and i know some growers are definitely asking me if if you were going to do you know you can do some pretty heavy-handed augmentations and findings to the wine to see if if it really helps and so be interesting to see what some colleagues have done with that i know that I wasn't really interested in, in trying that per se um, but on a, probably crop insurance right I think that's the biggest thing. I think a lot of growers here in the valley were so small compared to you know big commercial regions. But a lot of people didn't have crop insurance and so I think I've seen a lot of growers go out and get crop insurance at this point and I think it goes back to that where where do, where can we push not just Avery but the industry further is? You know, being more sustainable, reducing our carbon footprint, um, you know, I don't, you know, the globe's not going to get cooler and, you know, I just, we need a good vintage, so <laughs> we got we can't have fire this year. Yeah, I mean, that was absolutely devastating. But it's been wild from the heat dump to the fires to the ice storm to COVID. I mean, it's just been one thing after another up here. So. Uh, right now, things in the vineyard look really good. Hopefully, we just stay on that trajectory.
1: So the other part of that you mentioned with, with COVID, uh, obviously a lot of changes that had to take place in the last year from, from winemaking, from from vineyard work to, to hospitality. Uh, the changes you saw, what's going to stick around uh, now that we're kind of coming out of the pandemic, and what do you, what's going to get back to normal, and what do you think has changed for good? I think this is
2: it's certainly beyond the industry I think you'll see a lot more kind of work from home remote to a certain degree uh, you know kind of workforce or acceptability um, but I think one thing we've seen in COVID that we saw in the 08 recession um, is that when times are hard people are not gonna stop spending discretionary income on alcohol. They're just gonna spend less. And so I think coming out of COVID, it'll be interesting to see how the Willamette Valley at that price point does, because it it had a very good year, particularly in kind of the Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, New Seasons kind of marketplace on the shelf. It did really, really well. Um, So hopefully we can maintain that as well as see you know, kind of our restaurant partners and, and as a society comes back to life, it would be great to see, you know, to see things kind of, as we're reopening, to, to see things take off and keep that momentum going, mm-hmm. that'd be awesome.
1: So tell me about your initial impressions of the Oregon wine industry as you were getting into it a decade or so ago, uh, what were the impressions then, uh, biggest impressions then, and what in your mind what has changed the most from kind of your initial impressions to now?
2: No, it was hard to say, but talking to, talking to people, I think early on the wines and the farming weren't as nearly as good as they are. And that's no knock on, on those, those early years, uh, my early years in the industry, but it seems like we're grown up and we've done it fast and the whole world has taken notice and we are now a, a very major player and an extremely well-respected one. Uh, on the international scene and just talking to people who are a lot smarter, been doing a lot longer than I have, it seems like that we've stepped up our game, especially viticulturally. We are we know more and we're doing better and the winemaking techniques and the consistency of winemaking have, have grown as the quality of viticulture has and I think we're putting out a better a consistently better wine, and more of it, and that and that's really cool. And I just think that's
1: going to keep going. Well, on that note, too, um, what does the future of the Oregon wine industry look like from your perspective? Uh, obviously, a lot of growth since you've been here. Does that continue? Uh, what other changes are you kind of looking forward to? or are there things you're afraid of in, in the future?
2: I don't know, like any real fears that come to mind. Um, you know, there's a shortage of ancillary things, right? So if you need warehousing, or like me, Custom Crush Winery space, I think that the infrastructure will come. Um, certainly we've seen outsiders come. I'm an outsider, right? I'm a Californian, but I think you're seeing a lot more people come from abroad to Oregon, and I think that'll come in the ancillary services side, um, be it whatever whatever you need to, to have a vineyard, to have a winery, the, that, that, that stuff will come. But um, I think Oregon is going to continue to be built on Pinot Noir. I think it's what does best here. It, it's what grows really well here. Um, Chardonnay is getting a foothold. I feel like people really love to talk about Oregon Chardonnay. They love to drink Oregon Chardonnay. It just doesn't sell as well. And so I think that, that'll catch up, and that'll do its thing. And then I think people are planning and doing really cool, unique things that aren't or Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Um, those will be the backbone and the staple of, of Oregon. But there's a lot of other cool stuff going on, and I think that'll, that'll grow and gain its own foothold, as, as will tourism, right? I think people are, people are coming in droves to taste here and, and see See our, our home state. It's a beautiful place. I think all that stuff's gonna kind of continue to expand in its own right, and that that's all, that's really exciting.
1: What about for the future for yourself and for Averine, Averine? What 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 comes next for you, and what what's sort of the future of the brand? We have a
2: project in Walla Walla, um, which is really exciting, and I'm gonna start working with our other winemaker Rob on kind of vinifying the. The Walla Walla wines. Um, it's mostly a cab, but I think there's red blunt coming out of there. Avery in itself is, you know, I think in a really good place. We found our, we found our niche and we're gonna stick with it. I think it's just about at this point growth that makes sense and not just growing to grow, but um, but just kind of keeping the momentum we've created and, and and building upon it smartly and slowly. And then, who knows, I don't know, I think there might be another Oregon project in the works for Valkyrie. What it is, it won't be Averine, but what it is, uh, we'll see. So those are all really exciting kind of career moves. And then, personally, I don't know, I've got, uh, I've got three young kids, an awesome wife, nice home. And so we're, we spend a lot of time um, goofing around, enjoying the Northwest, and gardening, and doing all that sort of stuff. So. Just dad life, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) which is awesome. Um, Totally unexpected. It wasn't planned, but yeah, three later, um, hamming it up.
1: So if someone were to ask you about joining the Oregon wine industry, what would your words of wisdom or advice be to them? Yeah, do
2: it. Do it. Um, And be cool. I think everyone's very, you know, I don't think it's, ultra competitive and everyone's incredibly friendly and um, and the, I've never worked down there but you, you hear different in other wine regions of the world and I just knowing our industry and knowing what the Oregon, Oregon wine industry is like I couldn't see that elsewhere but um, yeah come join us it's, it's a great lifestyle choice and I know that I used to speak to the one of the wine studies classes every year and, you could do anything you want, from label design to to tractor work. Right? You can kind of check all boxes. You can live, you can live in a PDF spreadsheet, or you could be a CFO. You know, there's really it's all encompassing. There, there's the job for you if you want to be in this industry. There's there's something that'll 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 make you happy. And
1: all right. All so the questions that I have for you today, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here that we should have covered?
2: No, I'll just say thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of people that you've interviewed that are, are really meaningful, whether they're old roommates um, uh, or mentors. It's really, it's really awesome to, to be part of the series. It's very special to do it here at Linfield. I've worked IPNC. You can hear the mower in the background, some of you, maybe. I used to work grounds crew here at Linfield when I was here. After IPNC, some of the coolest wines I first drank was a college kid. They would just like find them in the bushes. After IPNC, weeding grounds crew, you'd find like, you know, 20-year-old wines being like, oh, is this any good? I don't know. Run it up to the dorm. We'll drink it after work, whatever. So it was very cool to be part of this. Very special to do it back here on campus, and uh, thank
1: you. Well, thank you so much. And we actually planned the mower to be going around behind you (laughs) as part of the whole ambiance here. So glad that worked out well. Thank you so much for your time, for joining us here, for your stories, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.